Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to start by uh, telling you a story about a lady, Iris Goddard, uh, who died recently. Um, and you've probably not heard of her. She was born in 1930 in East London uh, and committed her life to follow God at a young age. When she celebrated her 90th birthday in 2020, she had three children, 12 grandchildren, and 15 great-grandchildren present. She has faithfully prayed for her family throughout her life. And I am so grateful to Iris, who's my nana, whose faithful prayer and lasting legacy is that there are a number of generations after her who continue to follow Jesus, including me, my parents, my brother and sister, and many of my cousins. Uh, my, my nana died on Friday the 13th of January this year, and we went to her funeral 10 days ago. And it was both a sad day, but also a day of celebration of her life. And we gathered together on that day to remember her life, to mourn over her death. And, and I was sad on that day, uh, but I was also comforted that Jesus has taken her to be with him, and that she will receive that well done, good and faithful servant. I just wanted to start with that story, just to way, in a way to lead us into the topic of today's message. So, so, so over the last couple of months, we've been looking at Your Kingdom Come series. So we've been considering some of the themes of life in the kingdom of God. Um, and we've, a few weeks, we've been looking at a passage in Luke 4, when Jesus sort of announces the kingdom, which in turn involved Jesus quoting from Isaiah 61. Um, and today we're going to look at one of those verses, one of those phrases in Isaiah 61, which is, uh, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. So I'm just going to start by reading that passage in Isaiah, um, just to kind of remind us where it fits in. So this is starting the beginning of Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The words should be on screen as well. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So today we're looking at that theme of comfort and focusing on that verse, as I mentioned, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And to help us do that, we're going to consider four questions together. Firstly, who are those mourning in Zion? Just to get us a context here. What does it mean to mourn? How does God comfort us? And fourthly, how can we comfort others? So the first of those questions, who are those mourning in Zion? And why? What are they mourning for? So those in Zion here 
are God's people. Zion is another word for Jerusalem or for God's holy people, the Jewish nation. So I want to take you on a, a quick whistle stop history tour of the nation. So the nation finds its origins in Abraham. They were rescued from Egypt through Moses, where they received their commission as a nation in front of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, that if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and holy nation. So from that original commission, they reach and they occupy the promised land to establish a home for themselves, for the people of God. They receive later a king on the throne in line with the other nations, and God promises in 2 Samuel verse 7 that David's throne would be established forever. And throughout all this time, God dwells with his people. His holy presence was with them. There was a place amongst them where he dwelt and where people could come and worship. First, in the tabernacle. I've got like a little image here. Just the first leaf of the tabernacle. And uh, maybe those of us who've been reading the Bible in one year have been reading recently about how God had instructed them and all the different ways that they had to make sure this, was, this tabernacle was built and how the priest could approach his presence. And then later on, when the nation was established, Solomon, who was one of the first kings, built the temple in Jerusalem where God's presence dwelt. But looking back at the passage, the people to whom Isaiah is speaking to, they have been utterly devastated. So by this point in the nation, they had been led by unfaithful king after unfaithful king. And yes, I think they knew, or at least some of them knew, that God had said to them, if you obey my commands, all these blessings will come on you, but if you disobey my commands, amongst other terrible things, God warns the nations in, in various points, but in, in Deuteronomy 28, um, there's a few verses, he warns them that they will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. And then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. But surely some of the people must have been thinking, ah, oh, surely this can't happen to God's treasured possession, God's holy nation. The armies of Babylon invaded Jerusalem in 597 BC, 587 BC, and 582 BC. They demolished the city and the temple. They killed men, women, and children. And in three deportations, they exiled thousands of Jews, Israel's middle and upper class, to Babylon, some 800 miles from Judea. I think I've got a picture up here. Yeah, so that's, that's a map of, of the nation. So at the bottom, well, on the left there, you can see Judah. Um, and they got exiled right up there, right around the Arabian desert and right across to Babylon. So it's a, a huge 800-mile journey. They left the poor to farm the land for Babylon, and they terminated the two institutions that I just mentioned that formed the center of Israel's life for centuries, the temple and the Davidic kingship. 
And you can read more about that, about the destruction of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 24 and 25. So going back to that question, who who are those mourning in Zion? The mourners are both those in Psalm 137, who by the rivers of Babylon sat and wept when they remembered Zion. But I think it also is those who subsequently returned, because 70 years later, um, they, they were able to come back to, back to Jerusalem uh, and to start rebuilding the, the foundations of the temple. And in Ezra 3, verse 12, it says that many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the formal temp- former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. And I think weeping, mourning over what had been lost during that 70 years and maybe mourning over the, over the glory of the first temple and whether God's presence would ever fill that temple again. Now, I'm somebody who, who loves traveling. I love different cultures. Um, I love trying different foods. Uh, I'm not really a, a home bird. I, I even chose to study in Durham in the northeast of England when I grew up in the southwest, so I kind of chose one of the furthest places away. Uh, back in 2010, I spent um, a full 12 months living in southwest China. Um, might be a picture up here. Uh, I don't know if you can see that well. Um, this is one of the Chinese markets which you went to buy your, you know, your foods. They didn't have uh, Tesco or any, anything like that. You had to go in and they had it all laid out. So best to go in the morning whilst it was still fresh, I think. Um, but yeah, so I spent, I spent the 12 months there. I learned some Chinese. I taught some English. Uh, and whilst I was there, I, I loved living in a different culture, and I, and I went of my own choice. Uh, but, but even me, who, who loves that, you know, that kind of thing, there were moments when I felt homesick. And, and so looking, going back to that story, the story that I've been telling you before, I, just, I can't imagine how the exiles felt being displaced from their hometown. And I think, yes, they were homesick, uh, but on a much greater level than my simple example. I can't even imagine how hard it is to be displaced involuntarily and how hard it is even today for those around the world who are still being displaced involuntarily from their home countries. So why are they mourning? I think in great sadness, in in hopelessness maybe. This is the end of the nation. Is this the end of the, the promised monarchy? The temple's been destroyed and Will it ever be fully rebuilt to its former glory? Maybe they felt that God had left them. The city was in ruins, even when they returned. And what about that calling of God on their lives? That if you obey God's commands, they will be blessed. I think here that they're also mourning over their own sin. The effects of sin that has led them to where they're at. And their own inability to obey God. So moving on to the second question that we're looking at this morning, what does it mean for us to mourn? If that was mourning for them, what is it for us? How how should we mourn? Well, to mourn is to express a deep feeling of regret, grief, or loss, usually over someone's death. It's a reflection on the grief of our current circumstances and a longing for the way things should be. And in the death of a loved one, there's that kind of wrenching separation that is now there. Like those mourning in Zion, 
I'm sure we all have our own stories. And mourning for us is firstly losing the things that were so precious to us. And we can mourn over smaller things. We can mourn over things like the loss of opportunities or possibilities. Our culture's FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, and one thing that, um, that Faye and I did before we got married, I've got a nice picture from six and a half years ago, Faye and I, uh, but before we got married, um, we took time to be aware of what we were letting go of when we got married. And we took some time to grieve over the end of that previous period of our lives, that uh, singleness, saying goodbye. And I think um, just partly reflecting on our mortality. And I guess, and I think we just wanted to know what the, the, that, that was over and we had to say bye to it and we were entering into the kind of new stage of life. But I think it's something that can be useful in, in any of our transitions to kind of just reflect on, on the limitations of our lives. Um, you know, what, even things like moving house, finishing school or college, becoming a parent, becoming a grandparent, retiring, kids leaving home, all those things are, are you know, good opportunities for us to, to reflect on those kinds of things. And we can also mourn over heavier subjects, redundancy, breakdown of relationships, infertility. And of course, we also mourn over the death of loved ones. Those times, like the people of Israel that we described above, to whom it feels like their worlds are shattering before them. And I think we mourn even more strongly, our groans even louder, when it's people who die younger than they should have. Like our friend who died of cancer when she was just 23. Uh, or another family friend who died of cancer, leaving a husband and five kids. We mourn thinking, that's not fair. That's not how it should be. And we mourn because of loss, because of separation, and because of death, which is ultimately rooted in sin. Sin and death has infected us all. And as Christians, we are called to be a mourning people because of that devastation and that damage of sin. So what does it mean to mourn? I think it means ultimately to see the impact of sin in our own lives and to mourn, and also to mourn corporately over, over the sin, the sin of the world as well. And we can find many examples in the Bible of God's people mourning over that personal and corporate sin. Like in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and says, Woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or in Ezra 9, Ezra, it says, At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. So just some questions to ask ourselves. Have you connected deeply or mourned deeply with sin? Or have you just mourned on the surface? Have you mourned right to the root, the sin of the world, the sin in our lives? 
We should allow ourselves to mourn. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. I think that our culture can't bear to sit in grief, can't bear to mourn and to look death in the face. At funerals, people are always expected to try and hold themselves together. And, and people do not like to think about death, often choosing distraction or, or focusing on the celebration of lives rather than staying in that messiness of mourning, of grief, and of sadness. And I think it's true for me as well that distraction can be a key escapism tactic. And I think as a church, we're not exempt from this as well. Sometimes perhaps we use triumphalistic Christian phrases too quickly to skip over that grief of ourselves or of others. We're asking, oh, at least they didn't suffer, or we'll see them again soon. And while those things might be true, we we need to allow ourselves to, to stay in that mourning place sometimes for a bit longer. Mourning doesn't equal a lack of faith or hope. We need to stop shaming ourselves and others in this. How much space do we give ourselves to repent and to mourn? Perhaps 30 seconds in corporate communion. And like Andrew spoke to us last week, we need to ask God to soften our hearts and regularly repent of our sin to make room for God's forgiveness. I think mourning and lamenting, similar themes, I think they're things that we're not good at, me included. And so I'm looking forward in a few weeks' time to our series on lament. Um, as we look further at this topic. And I know so far, this is a heavy topic, looking at mourning, uh, but it is important for us to hear what the Bible says. And I know it might be a hard topic for some of us in the room, but as Christians, we know that we don't just stop here. There is comfort and hope. And you'll be glad to know that we're moving on to that in the second half of the verse now. So third question How does God comfort us? How do we receive and experience the kingdom value of comfort? Can we receive full comfort from our mourning now? And looking back to the the people of Zion, how, how were they comforted? How are they being comforted? So comfort itself, it literally means with strength and to encourage, to console. And in Isaiah, the, the main theme running through the whole of the second half of the book from chapter 40, which was spoken to these people who are mourning in Zion, it starts, and I've got the the words up on the screen like this, from verse 1 of chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So these prophetic words, they are inspired by Isaiah, some 100 years before the people had even gone into exile. His message from this point on in the book is for those people that we've mentioned, whose whole world has been shattered. And for people like that, cheap comfort is not only a waste of time, 
It's cruel. Comfort that is grounded, that is not grounded in reality, is no comfort at all. But Isaiah's word here to the exiles, it's not like that, is based on truth at every point. And Barry Webb, in his commentary on the book of Isaiah, picks out three specific truths that I want to draw out as well. So the first one of those is that they are God's people. The covenant God made with his people at Mount Mount Sinai still stands. God is not indifferent to Jerusalem's plight. God is not indifferent to our plight, our mourning, and our pain. He still has plans for his people, and he still has plans for that special place, Jerusalem. Like the prodigal son in the far country, they are reminded that they still have a father who loves them and a home to go to. The second truth is that they've been forgiven. The penalty for their sins has been paid in full. What great news. But also unexpected, I think, for those mourning in Zion. How could this be? Has, has 70 years of exile paid for all their rebellion that had been going on for generations? And I, I'm not going to go into the how here, but um, hopefully you'll be around at Easter time to find out how. <laughs> the third truth is that God will not leave them where they are, but will bring them home. And the processional way through the wilderness, it's not just the way for the Lord, but it's also the way for his people too, as he's going to take them with him. God will tend, gather, carry, and lead his people as he brings them back to Zion. And so for us in our our morning, I believe those truths also apply to us today. We are God's people. God is not indifferent to our plight. He sees us as we mourn. We have been forgiven. The gospel is good news. Jesus has come. Jesus actually did something. He paid for our sins. He forgives us. And if you are here today and you've never received God's forgiveness, it is freely available if you turn to him and ask. God does not leave us where we are in our mourning. He leads us home to him, to his presence. And I think the key to receiving comfort is what we've been talking about earlier when we fully understood the depth of depravity of our souls and those around us, then we can truly rejoice at this good news. When we fully understood the loss, we can fully receive God's comfort. And I think for us to receive that kingdom comfort, we need to allow ourselves to mourn and through our mourning experience God's comfort. And I just want to say that again, because I think this is a key point that For us to receive that kingdom comfort, we we need to allow ourselves to mourn and through our mourning experience God's comfort. But another question to think about is, is how much comfort do we receive? How much can we receive now? And I think it's going back to that, um, that phrase, the now and not yet of the kingdom that we've probably heard over the last few weeks. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. But, but yes, we do still grieve, we do still mourn, but with hope. And before this good news, we mourned without hope. The people in Isaiah were still in exile when they received that message. They'd still not seen the temple, and the city of Jerusalem had still not been fully restored to its glory. But they must have felt 
some of that comforting words and the hope that they brought, even though it was still to be fully realized. And we can parallel this with the now not yet kingdom for us. We can receive comfort from God now, knowing those truths that we talked about, that we are God's people, we are forgiven, and God is bringing us home. It's possible to tangibly receive that comfort of God now. He is the God of all comfort, as it says in 2 Corinthians. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel pain, and it doesn't mean that all our pain is taken away. But sometimes we sense the kingdom breaking in, and we feel God's overwhelming love, comfort, and God's words of hope in our lives right now. And that's, our, that's my prayer for us this morning as well, that we would see the kingdom breaking in. Although the pain and mourning we feel might not fully go away until Jesus returns, it is possible to see the kingdom breaking through in our lives now and to tangibly receive God's comfort. In Revelation 22, it says um, to the, the people that it says that they will see his face. We don't yet live in that reality but he will restore all things. We don't yet see our savior face to face, but we will. And sometimes it's hearing that very message itself that gives us comfort. So our fourth point uh, is how can we comfort others? And as Andrew mentioned last week, um, Leslie Newbigin, who's uh, I think a, a teacher in South India, or spent several years there, he taught this three-step pattern that we experience God's kingdom, we demonstrate God's kingdom in actions, and we announce God's kingdom in words. So as we experience God's kingdom through receiving his comfort, it's good to ask that question, what does it mean for us to demonstrate and display his comfort, and what does it mean for us to announce it? So when offering comfort to others, we've got to be very careful of offering false comfort. This is a hard truth, but ultimately, for those who don't follow God, there is no real and lasting comfort. And I think that's one of the reasons why people don't like mourning, that there is no hope in death. So to truly receive God's comfort, people need to truly mourn over their sin. So ultimately, we can, off- we can only offer God's comforts to people and invite them to know Jesus. It's God who forgives. It's God who brings hope. It's God who draws people home. And so I think our role in this, as in what what does it mean, how can we comfort others? I think our role is, I've got three points. Firstly, practically love people who are mourning. And I was thinking of that in terms of the love languages. I don't know if you have heard of those. I'm trying to try and remember them now. So like, words of affirmation, physical touch, gifts, acts of service, and quality time. So, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, when we're, when we're comforting those who are mourning that we know, I think it's good to think like that. So some people giving a gift of flowers, other people spending time with them, other people might be offering them meals, going mowing their lawn, those kinds of things. Like That's a, a good way of us thinking about practically loving people. Secondly, it's just to listen. Um, I know some of us that have been reading the Bible in a year have, have been looking at Job, and um, you know, they're, they're quick to speak, I think, and I think much better is to, to be listening. I mean, we do need to speak sometimes, and, and it's important just 
so sometimes we shouldn't just say nothing, but I think listening is, is so important uh, to bring comfort to people. And then thirdly, just be with them in their grief. We're called to mourn with those who mourn. And so we need to enter into their pain, of course, if they're willing and with their permission. I think as we do those three things, uh, we can then start to point them to Jesus, to start announce his kingdom. As we love people practically and our hearts are filled with compassion. And we can, we can, of course, pray for people, pray with people. Again, we just need to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and sensitivity throughout as we do this. Remember, we can't convict people of their sin, and we can't save people. Uh, and so to offer comfort, we need to meet people in their mourning and lead them in their mourning to God to receive the comfort that God offers. So this morning, we've looked at those four questions. Um, we've looked at uh, who the people in Zion were who were mourning. We've looked at what is mourning, how does God comfort us, and how can we offer comfort to others. And I just want to kind of close with just a few questions to, to, for us to ponder. So firstly, have you connected deeply or mourned deeply over sin? Second question is... Uh, are you going through a period of mourning? Are you in need for greater comfort and hope? Can you open yourselves up this morning to receive more of God's comfort? And then finally, who is God leading you to at the moment to meet in their mourning? And I just wanted to close with these encouraging words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18, and then I'll, I'll lead us into prayer. Uh, this passage came to mind on the day of my Nana's funeral and brought me comfort, knowing that both her and I will get to be with the Lord forever. So this is from verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So um, let's just pray together. Father God, we, um, we thank you for your words of comfort to us. Thank you, God, that we will be with you forever. And Father, I just want to invite your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. Lord, would you send your Spirit to be amongst us? And I pray that you would be speaking to us 
as we've been pondering those, those three questions at the end this morning, um, I pray that you will be speaking to us, Lord, that we would hear your voice. Lord, would you, would, would you challenge us where we need to be challenged and would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Um, Father, I, I just pray that, um, that you would meet with us this morning. Lord, we, we so need to experience your comfort, Lord. Um, yeah, I just pray that you'd come, you'd, you'd meet with us, um, that we would know your presence with us, that we would glimpse that hope that we have, um, even though it's not yet fully here, I pray that we would experience your comfort this morning. Amen.